Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained here it is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Paul M., Andy S., Mike P., and Ryan S. On the program today is a new guest, Mr. Doomberg, who identifies as the Green Chicken, is with us on the program. Mr. Doomberg is the lead chicken at the Chicken Coop that writes attractive and well-positioned commentary on energy, natural resources, the market, finance, and more to establish the fundamentals that are missing from many of the conversations and decision-making. You can learn more about Mr. Doomberg and their work via their website, Doomberg, which is doomberg.substack.com. Mr. Doomberg, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Absolutely. Yeah, we try to be creative. Appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. Well, why don't we kick it off here as normal with new programs? Uh, you know, tell the audience about your background and experience in the markets, how this all formed for you and how you see the markets. You bet. Uh, Doomberg, as you mentioned, is um, a small team of uh, former industry experts that uh, write on Substack. We publish six to eight commentary articles per month. Um, we have an ever-growing list of, of readers. It's been a real blast. We started Doomberg two and a half years ago under the assumption that there was something missing in the discourse around uh, energy, and, and in particular, it was that industrial lens. Most of the commentary that we see either comes from government officials or university professors um, or folks that really um, haven't spent much time working in commodity companies in the sector who understand the sort of uh, the realities on the ground. And that most people who are in industry are prohibited from commenting um, because they have public affairs teams in between them and the, and the public, and they have you know stock options and stock prices to worry about, and they want to be seen as saying and doing all the right things. And and of course, the mainstream media um, does a disservice to the public as well. And so that was the market inefficiency that we identified two and a half years ago. Um, as you mentioned, we write about um, energy finance and the economy at large, and have, having a blast doing it. And my personal background is um, I'm a scientist by training. I spent several decades working in and around energy and commodities, um, the whole gamut of traditional engineering projects to improve existing work processes to you know, major investments in new energy technologies uh, and everything in between. And um, like I say, um, we, we spent a couple of years consulting uh, and then built Doomberg um, starting in 2021 and it's, it's blown up beyond all of our wildest dreams. You know, you guys have been really successful in the model. The green chicken application has been excellent. Um, and just the quality of the work is really well done. So I definitely commend you on that. And, you know, you're right. I, there's a lot of startups in the media side and, you know, independent research, et cetera. There's just so much uh, really kind of post, you know, call it three years ago, let's call it post COVID. You know, there's been a lot of alternative media that's come in and about uh, that carries so much more quality than just your traditional sources. And then of course you're, you're right. So I think what you were trying to say to some degree is, some of those folks at the higher levels just don't have that real world experience or they just can't provide that because of their limitations, you know, in their contracts or what have you. So why don't we move to just generally here and then I want to get into some details, but, you know, tell us about how you look at energy, you know, some of the irrational thinking out there and where you think energy is heading in the coming decades. 
we look at energy from a, uh, this is a bit of a tired phrase, but a first principles perspective, we look with physics as our guide. And anybody who studies energy long enough quickly comes to the following conclusion that basically energy is life, which is a phrase that we have tried to popularize. So everybody listening to this podcast, their standard of living is, is defined by how much energy they get to harness. And since all humans everywhere want an ever increasing standard of living, um, it is just this human endeavor, uh, uh, which is a constant unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. You know, you, you need energy in order to impose order on your local environment. Right angles do not appear spontaneously in nature. The more energy you get to harvest, the, the wealthier you are. Um, and you, know, you, you either go you know, flying commercial with uh, the general public to, if you get rich enough, you know, flying a private jet, the carbon footprint um, uh, in our society and across all society scales with wealth. And reducing carbon footprint um, basically means keeping people, people poor and, and most people don't want to be poor. Um, and so um, when we look at energy, we, we look at the following sort of grand trade-off equation, which is um, how much net energy are we producing as a society divided by our impact on the planet. And we believe that is the equation that we should be optimizing. Um, far too much of our discourse focuses only on minimizing the denominator uh, with no thought given to the impact on the numerator. And in our view, it's the numerator that is the fundamental driver of, um, of, of humanity in its pursuit of energy. And in order to really make an impact on the environment, we have to consider those trade-offs. Very well. And I want to come into that uh, in more detail now and bring up uh, just a piece you also did uh, recently, uh, you know, let's call it a month ago or so. I, I might be a little bit off on my dates, but a piece done on ExxonMobil and the pressure from groups such as BlackRock and Vanguard over fossil fuels. You know, this opens up a lot of discussion and probably more discussion than we have time for today. But talk about this particular article in the context of what you saw coming out of that research and work on that article. And then your take on these pressures on fossil fuel initiatives out there to basically remove fossil fuels from our lives. But unfortunately, they're part of our daily lives and will be that way for, I can't even estimate how long, for a long time going forward, maybe forever. Just talk about that and how you see these pressures. Yeah, the, the piece you mentioned is one we put out in mid-October called Power Play. And it starts with the state of affairs in mid-2021 for um, Exxon and its CEO, Darren Woods. And as we said in the piece, you know, it was, uh, things were not looking so great for Mr. Woods, who is, of course, an Exxon lifer. And anybody who's interacted with Exxon knows that uh, that this is a very inward-looking culture, and it's very very difficult to climb the ladder as an outsider um, there. And um, he he was facing an unexpected assault from above. And and you mentioned BlackRock, who, you know, Larry, um, Larry Fink, as the CEO of BlackRock, is featured as sort of the, uh, the uh, opposite, the yin and the yang of Darren Woods. And, and at that time, of course, BlackRock and Vanguard and all of these money aggregators, as we call them, were, uh, because of passive investing, accumulating an enormous number of shares in basically every publicly traded company in the world. And they started to come under pressure from environmentalists to exercise the financial leverage that would typically come with being an owner of a company, i.e. voting your shares and uh, pressuring management to make change. And Fink in particular, you may recall, um, he was uh, writing in his annual letter to CEOs um, all about climate. And in fact, the, the 2021 edition of his annual letter mentions the word climate an incredible 27 times. And he um, was the catalyst behind a, a stunning defeat by Exxon at its annual shareholder meeting and um, this 
unheard of outfit called um, engine number one, ultimately with the backing of Fink uh, and others, uh, were able to secure three board seats um, at Exxon, a real stunning rebuke uh, of, uh, of Mr. Woods and his leadership, frankly. And, um, and this was celebrated widely, of course, in the mainstream media as a, as a milestone for um, the ESG movement. And the point of the piece is, in fact, that may have marked um, peak ESG uh, in hindsight and, and what a difference two short years can make. But um, if the world is moving away from fossil fuels, nobody sold ExxonMobil. And based on what we think are some pretty intelligent strategic moves they've made this year, including the acquisition of Denbury and the acquisition, or the, at least the, the attempt to acquire Pioneer, um, had a pretty remarkable turn of events. And, and as we show uh, in the piece, Exxon stock um, has returned basically a little over 100% since that fateful day in May of 2021, while BlackRock shares have uh, slumped 25% over the same time period. And, and we would argue that 130% you know, difference in total return is the ultimate uh, scorecard uh, for CEOs. And, and by that measure, Exxon, uh, Exxon and Mr. Woods have done quite well. Well said. And I think this opens up a few other things that, that we need to discuss and get your take on. But I guess before we do that, talk about fossil fuels from viewpoint in terms of everybody thinks of fossil fuels generally as, you know, potential energy sources, uh, fuel for their cars, these types of things. But talk about fossil fuels on the day-to-day -day basis. And maybe there's some folks out there that just don't understand that fossil fuel is with us daily, even if we're not driving cars. 85% roughly of the world's global energy needs are currently served by fossil fuels. And the growth of so-called renewable energies has not shrunk by one grant the amount of fossil fuels um, we are consuming worldwide. And that might sound weird to people, but every, you know, we, we put out a piece a couple of months ago where we developed what we call Doomberg's postulate, which states every molecule of fossil fuels produced in the world will be burned by somebody somewhere. And local restrictions in that regard merely shift who gets to enjoy the privilege. What we're seeing in 2023, record production and demand for coal, record production and demand for oil, record production and demand for LNG, all while wind and solar are um, you know, coming off the bottom a little bit and beginning to be somewhat meaningful in our energy mix. Why is that? Because five or six billion people on this planet live a lifestyle that nobody listening to this podcast would recognize. Um, they are all desperately hungry for energy and, and the life nourishing uh, consequences that having an abundance of energy provides. And if we stop using coal, or oil, or natural gas, uh, the global south, as it's known, uh, will will happily and greedily consume it. And um, everywhere we look, uh, you're seeing the same thing. And this this thought that you know the the richest countries in the world proactively and voluntarily deciding to um, to uh, shift some portion of their energy needs into uh, a renewable uh, solution is going to meaningfully change how much fossil fuels get burned around the world. It's just naive and it's a complete failure uh, of understanding of how the energy markets actually work. The reality is so much different than the narrative being promoted out there. Just the fact that these materials come in the form of resins and plastics and compounds and various things that we're using. Our devices we're using daily come from this product. Aside from the energy need, all of these various products are derived from fossil fuel materials, which a lot of people tend to forget. Um, 
let's stick on BlackRock for a moment. As you know, one of the largest concentrations of wealth, if not the largest concentration of wealth in human history, from my understanding, with that concentration of wealth comes incredible positions of power to drive decisions for government and therefore impact the lives of all people. Thoughts on that concentration and thoughts on that newfound, let's go use this concentration as leverage to implement our thinking. It's a fascinating question. So if you just take BlackRock, they essentially create ETFs that are meant to expose their investors to a diversified basket of risk, depending on their investor desires. For the longest time, it was assumed that because these flows were passive, that um, BlackRock and Vanguard and these types of firms shouldn't really be allowed to vote the proxy the way Larry Fink thinks the proxy should be voted, <laughs> right? Larry Fink is making a decision for um, all of the passive investors that flow into his ETF. And there are probably you know, at least as many investors in the S&P 500 ETF um, that are pro fossil fuels as there are investors who are opposed to it. And the move by Fink and others to usurp the power of the in individual investors in their ETF um, is a novel, um, a novel development and a, a bit of a controversial one. And, and so, um, and in fact, um, Fink has, as we mentioned in the piece, of course, you know, as we, we jokingly call it, he entered the, the find out phase of political activism and began to see um, large pension funds of, at the state level, especially those that you would consider sort of the Republican South, begin to move their money out of BlackRock's um, management and into other funds. And, and Fink has since uh, led a hasty retreat on the matter and, and um, is, is now regularly bemoaning how polarizing the ESG debate has come and, and, and probably regrets his participation in it. Um, it's a bit of revisionism, of course, because in his, his telling of how things happened, um, he, was, uh, you know, he play, played no role in creating the controversy that he now finds himself in. Um, but you know, the, this, this concentration of power um, in, in the hands of few, as, as you call it, is really just a symptom of the, of the wealth gap that keeps growing uh, in our country as well. Um, and this, of course, will only be further exacerbated by the forced implementation of ESG policies uh, because the wealthy can insulate themselves uh, from these policies. And these are the ultimate, you know, uh, tax on the poor. Appreciate your comments on that. And, and it certainly is a very interesting set of affairs that we have here. And if we could get into discussions about concentration of wealth and the bankers of the world and play in all sides narrative, pretty clear that that is uh, coming more and more to become obvious for people sorting out who really pulls the strings. But let's talk a little bit uh, here. You mentioned BlackRock and their push on ESG and the potential for peak ESG, which sounds pretty good, uh, but also big narratives like climate change. I'd like to get the chicken coop's view on climate change. As I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this discussion, we have this sort of overall trade-off equation that we'd like to focus on, which is um, the net energy that we produce as a society divided by our impact on the environment. And we would divide our impact on the environment into two categories. And they're often convoluted uh, or you know, combined with each other in a way that is a bit deceptive. Uh, one category is pollution and the other category is um, carbon emissions. And so if we focus on pollution for, for a bit, I think um, there are serious challenges with the commodity sector and the fossil fuel industry and the chemical industry that need to be addressed. I think it's fair to expect that companies operating around the world should be held to a high standard uh, with regard to pollution. One of the big challenges that we see worldwide, of course, is that China holds its domestic producers to a different standard than ours, and that allows them to crowd out 
um, Western producers of critical goods. And this is how China has grown to monopolize so many uh, of the critical minerals that we need to operate a society. We put a piece out at the end of October called Geopolitical Warfare um, with the social preview, how China destroys its environment to create monopolies and what we can do about it. Um, but as it pertains to carbon emissions, um, this obviously is a hyper-polarized debate. Um, it has sort of jumped the shark. Uh, there's no convincing anybody on either side. You either think you know, global warming and CO2 is a giant fraud perpetrated by the left, or you think global warming and CO2 is, um, is putting the entire planet at risk, and we are condemning future generations to uh, outright poverty um, you know, and, and dastardly lives um, by our greedy consumption of fossil fuels today. Um, we would fade climate alarmism. Um, we are bullish the human capacity to invent solutions to circumvent any negative consequences of our continued um, carbon emissions. We think that um, the technology pulse is, is radically uh, underestimated by, by, um, by the um, you know, population explosion crowd, uh, the limits to growth crowd, the Malthusian environmentalists who think that we should have far fewer people on the planet. Um, and so th that's kind of our position. I mean, there's some optionality we could build into um, our economy to allow us to remove carbon uh, from fossil fuels. Uh, there's some very innovative uh, approaches being tested and developed uh, in the market, and those should be pursued. Um, but by and large, um, we would fade climate alarmism. We think that uh, you know we're, we're pretty smart. Um, uh, unleashed, uh, the human spirit can um, overcome many challenges, including whatever negative consequences may come from the slow rise of, of carbon emissions that are projected to occur over the next century. I appreciate that. It's good to bring out some of those points. And uh, I think you and I both agree on things like responsible extraction of natural resources, uh, high standards for companies that are in these industries about curbing things that are pollutive and sensible steps I think that we can take and fully optimistic on human ingenuity, um, you know, optimistic and, and bullish humans for sure. You know, at the same time, uh, sadly, the climate Sadly, more about control than climate, just after some spending some time on these issues, that it's more about controlling the population rather than actually helping the environment. Um, of course, we've seen this for decades and decades and decades. At the end of the world's just 10 years away or five years away, what have you. And this has been happening for a long period of time. So do some work, spend some time, listen to credible people that actually do the work take the time to do that. Quite a conundrum, but I think overall there's a set of sensible solutions that I think most people could actually come and agree on for the most part. With the comments just briefly on ESG, uh, maybe just talk about ESG just briefly and where you see ESG going and you know if we should base our investments solely based on ESG scores. Well, ESG of course stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and it has been co-opted by the aggressive environmental left to focus exclusively on three things, really, wind, solar, and electric vehicles. I mean, that's what ESG means uh, in the context of, uh, of the modern discussion. Um, who could be opposed to stronger environmental stewardship, good governance, you know, and, and a focus on uh, more than just the bottom line, but perhaps some societal impacts as well. And, you know, um, if we look at wind, solar, and electric vehicles, I, I, you know, with the modern definition of ESG, I think the wind industry is on the verge of collapse. We've written about this uh, several times, most recently in a piece called Wind Baggery. Um, uh, solar, I think, um, it has a role to play in, in, the, in places that get a lot of sun, but it, it's forced installation in places like Germany, which has the solar incidence of Maine. It's just silly. Its capacity factor integrated over the year of 10 or 11% is a giant waste of money. Um, it makes no sense. Um, 
And of course, the problem with solar is it's completely and totally controlled by China for reasons that we outlined in geopolitical warfare. Um, virtually every um, solar panel on earth um, finds its way through China and uh, uses cheap thermal coal and slave labor to, to crowd out Western manufacturers. I was in the industry when, when China took it over, uh, uh, we think illegally. Um, and then as far as electric vehicles go, I think the market is beginning to fade that as well. I think there's a, there's a fine role to be played for plug-in hybrid electric vehicles and, and using um, reasonably sized batteries to get more and more efficiency out of the gasoline we do consume. Um, but by and large, I think the, the, the full battery electric vehicle mania has faded as well. And of course, China's position itself to dominate that market uh, as well in a piece we wrote called Build Your Dreams. Uh, we talked about how um, Warren Buffett-backed BYD is going to take the world by storm. And in the intervening months since we published that piece, we see further and further evidence. It might surprise some of your listeners to learn that um, BYD now builds more full battery electric vehicles than even Tesla and has a full complement of plug-in hybrids to spare. It actually sells batteries to Tesla. Um, it, it's, it's just amazing to see um, how BYD is just taking the world by storm. And this is a, a playbook that China has has played over and over and over again. And so um, I think when we mentioned peak ESG, as, as geopolitical tensions rise between the US and, and China, um, ESG, of course, will fall to the wayside because China dominates those industries and we can't rely on them uh, just for national security. Uh, and so that's sort of where, where we are on, on the ESG state of affairs. That's great. Opened up another set of things that we could certainly discuss here, but again, I'll, I'll try to pick out a few of them. But just the control of the supply chain by China, whether you're talking about copper, whether you're talking about cobalt, uh, lithium, graphite, rare earths, um, you know, there's a few others as well, but it's it's substantial supply chain control. And I want to come to wind and solar in just a moment and talk a little bit more detail about that. But this control of the supply chain by China is substantial. There has to be efforts deployed to reduce that reliance upon what's been structured there. And then as well, your comments on EVs. And we see relatively intelligent companies like Toyota and their leadership, you know, take a different pathway on these issues. EVs uh, to some degree in, in some urban applications, but uh, in the countryside, they don't work, uh, certainly do not. And there has been studies, and again, this is an area that we haven't spent a lot of time on, Mr. Doomberg, but just the consumption and the waste chain of EVs and also the requirements, the inputs to building EVs. Of course, you are outsourcing the energy portion of that, the, the charging of these vehicles uh, out to coal and gas and what have you, maybe a little bit of wind and solar, but <laughs> it's insignificant. But what are your thoughts just on internal combustion engine versus the consumption of EVs at this point. There have been studies pointing to internal combustion engine may not require as much. What are your thoughts just on EVs in general and maybe the approach that Toyota has taken with battery technology, et cetera? Sure. We wrote a piece. Uh, I guess I have photographic memory for all the titles of our pieces because I, I live and eat, and sleep and dream Doomberg, as you can imagine. Uh, we wrote a piece recently called Kaizen Battery, where we kind of had a skeptical look at, at Toyota's claims around solid state battery breakthrough, but by and large, Toyota is routinely held up as the ultimate example of, uh, you know, the innovator's dilemma, which is the opening story for that piece where, you know, big companies are necessarily good at serving their existing companies, which is what makes them big. Um, but they, uh, this cultural wiring is what makes them resistant to change uh, in the first place. And so Toyota has, um, in our view, correctly resisted the, uh, the BEV mania, uh, but it has uh, 
not done so without some penalty. Of course, its stock price has languished and it has not, uh, it is routinely criticized by outside investors and so on for, for being too slow and not innovative enough. But in reality, as we argued in the piece, you know, the Toyota Prius is probably responsible for abating more carbon emissions than any other consumer product in history. Um, here's the fundamental issue with electric vehicles. We are constrained by battery materials. There's not enough cobalt, lithium, nickel, copper to fully electrify everybody's car. And when I was in management, we always uh, had a dogma, which was that um, if we have a constraint, we must manage to that constraint. So if you take a, a typical battery electric vehicle, let's say it has an 80 kilowatt hour battery in it. If we put all 80 kilowatt hours of that battery into one car, we are abating the gasoline use, not the energy use, of course, but the gasoline use of 100% of one driver's car. You know, like, um, if you divide that battery into four 20 kilowatt hour batteries and sell four plug-in hybrids, which still have an internal combustion engine as backup, but can run predominantly on the battery, let's just say that 20 kilowatt hours gets you 40 miles of range uh, before you have to kick in uh, the internal combustion engine as backup. That can abate up to 90% of, of four drivers' um, gasoline demand. And let's just say it's, it's 70% or even 50%. If, if we can abate 50% of the gasoline use of four drivers, um, I can do simple math. Um, 0.5 times four is two, which is twice as good as one. Uh, and so batteries are the constraint. The technology for plug-in hybrids exists. But for some reason, the environmentalists are substantially opposed to plug-in hybrids. They get infuriated whenever governments um, express support for them. Um, and of course, this limited use of batteries, if, if, if you used four kilowatt hours to make a nice hybrid that gets 45 or 50 miles per gallon, and you, you could spread that over 20 vehicles. So you could do the math. Um, the opportunity to abate gasoline uh, is real. Um, it won't, of course, reduce our demand for oil, which is something we can talk about. But our view on, on battery electric vehicles is we'd be more than happy and perfectly fine to, drug, to drive a plug-in hybrid, that those, those um, drivetrains offer the, the maximum amount of environmental benefits with the minimum amount of um, consumer drawbacks. And I think uh, once we work our way through this, this, uh, the, the later phases of this EV mania, uh, we will pivot back to reality and, and um, the, the large automakers will be uh, allowed to keep making internal combustion engines because there is no real substitute uh, and we'll probably all be driving highly fuel efficient cars uh, into the 2030s and 40s. Very good points here. Very good. I appreciate that and I think it puts it into good context and I'm still a proud a Toyota diesel driver myself but uh, you know hey just for the sake of time I want to move from EVs off here and, and come back to just your views of large-scale commercial industrial if you will wind and solar energy you know I, I think that uh in certain applications solar has obviously promises and use in, in smaller probably more residential remote applications potentially but small scale and i think there's a limitation there uh wind is is very very much more questionable but what are your thoughts on these two sources just from the the view of we know that they don't work that well. I suppose the waste and the footprint component that so many people have forgotten about, and then also just that these solar, you know, solar farms, for example, and, and of course wind has similar issues, but the solar farms and just the overall, you know, wasting away of the panels from, of course, the sun, and then of course that leaching onto the ground and contaminating potentially substantial 
tracks of land and then of course you know wind and wildlife and all these other things but just the fact that they wear out uh, so quickly and the waste supply chains with battery technology maybe come at it from the angle of waste and footprint and, and just give us a few thoughts you bet I, I would partition the discussion between wind and solar because they're they're very different um and and they both have their drawbacks but i think we think wind is fatally wounded and, and frankly won't be around uh, for much longer i think that industry is in is in massive crisis uh, something we've been calling for um for all year um if we take solar there are parts of the world where solar makes a fair bit of sense. So for example, in the, in the US Sun Belt, um, there's a sort of seasonal, you know, where, where it's hot, um, the demand for electricity scales with the potential for solar to provide it. Whereas uh, in, in Germany, again, not to pick on our favorite country, but um, you know, the, the demand for electricity and energy scales in the winter when there's less sun and it makes absolutely no sense to put solar there. So I would start with the geographic consideration. Solar is a reasonable alternative in some parts of the world for some periods of time. Um, the big challenge with solar is China dominates it. So um, what does the, the supply chain for solar look like? Well, it starts with sand, then you put in enormous amount of energy and you make solar grade um, polysilicon, which is then formed into ignits, sliced into wafers and mounted uh, as cells uh, onto modules, which then get shipped around the world. China has a 97 plus percent control over uh, ignit uh, and forming and, uh, and wafering uh, and cell production. So even the, the three remaining polysilicon plants that we have in the US, all of that material has to get shipped to China for processing. It's the same thing with rare earth elements for the magnets that are in the wind turbine. Wherever rare earths are mined, 100% of the processing of those rare earths are done in China. And, and you know China does this uh, on purpose, like as we said in the piece, geopolitical warfare. Um, you know, in theory, cost differences among producers should be driven by technology innovation, but the reality on the ground uh, is different. In reality, um, cost differences between consumers in mature industries are often driven by the answer to one simple question, which is how much is each party allowed to pollute? And um, taken to the extreme, allowing domestic producers to recklessly pollute amounts to a hidden but decisive subsidy of, uh, uh, on those producers. And China does this over and over and over again, as we recently found out with their graphite uh, export limitations. Now, uh, wind, of course, has its own separate challenges. It is uh, deeply intermittent um, as well, has a low capacity factor, but also this offshore and the killing of the whales uh, all along the Atlantic coast is a real scandal, and the government's cover-up of it by the, uh, the uh, NOAA is itself, I think, a, a deeply embarrassing scandal. Um, we suspect that uh, we, will, we will install precious few, if any, major offshore wind installations as the true destructive nature uh, uh, of these uh, of these uh, giant pieces of machinery uh, being drilled into the ocean floor comes comes to bear. Um, so we, we would be far more bearish on the wind sector than the solar industry, um, but neither is really a panacea. Look, there is no path, and I'm sure we'll get on to discussion, there is no path to meaningful decarbonization that does not drive straight through nuclear energy. Um, and there's no need for wind and solar. We have the answer. If, if fission were invented today, it would be hailed as a civilization-saving invention that we should implement post-haste. Um, and so we'll toy around with solar and wind for a few more years. But when we do eventually get serious about optimizing that trade-off equation of producing more net energy while minimizing the impact on the planet, um, all roads lead to nuclear. Very good stuff. A recent guest on our program termed basically wind and solar. And again, you know, I agree, wind is oh, terrible. Solar has, again, 
limited use. Um, but this gentleman termed wind and solar as not renewables, but ruinables, ruinables, which I thought was a nice little play on the words. <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> let's move right to what you led into. Uh, let's go from one end of the essentially poor forms of commercial industrial scale energy to high quality, high density forms, such as splitting atoms, fission. What is your position on this energy source and how much uh, should we strongly look at this? Well, we think it's the answer. Um, we recently did a full presentation for our pro tier on uh, what we would do if we were in charge. We titled it King Doomberg, a, a comprehensive energy policy. And in that presentation, um, the majority of our recommendations for how we would orient society center around a proliferation of, of safe civilian nuclear energy, or as our friend Josh Wolf likes to call it, elemental energy, uh, because obviously the, the nuclear industry suffers from one critical problem, which is a branding one. Um, but if we focus on that energy and minimize impact on the planet, nuclear scores across all dimensions. And the biggest con, of course, of the environmentalists is their opposition to nuclear, uh, driven by the fear they've been able to artificially generate around the nuclear waste issue, which is one of the largest canards in the history of propaganda. Um, and so once you could get past the nuclear waste fallacy, uh, no other technology comes close. It's, it's got the highest energy density. It has the shortest energy return on energy invested. Uh, once installed, it can operate for decades. It provides safe, clean baseload power. Um, it really is the solution, um, which of course, get, getting to your point earlier about perhaps this ESG stuff being more about control. There is no reasonable basis for environmentalist opposition to nuclear power. And we are beginning to see uh, around the world um, that nuclear is enjoying a renaissance. And by the way, nuclear can do just about everything. Um, it can provide electricity. It can provide um, heat to create steam uh, uh, at industrial sites. You know, we do. We have these cogeneration plants that burn predominantly natural gas to make both electricity and steam. Most people listening might not know that the industrial production of steam accounts for more global carbon emissions than the sum of our transportation and aviation aviation sectors. Um, Ten percent of our global carbon emissions comes from the need to produce steam to execute manufacturing processes. Um, the the latest embodiments of of nuclear uh, power plant designs can produce a reasonably high quality, reasonably good high quality steam for use across many of those applications. So um, nuclear is the way to go. It will be the, where we end up if we care about human flourishing um, inevitably. Uh, it's just some, the, the, the real question is how much pain do we have to suffer between now and then? Very well said. Well, we love it. As you probably know, we love this solution. Um, we think it makes a lot of sense. It's proven. The safety record's incredible. The waste footprint is very tiny. The land footprint, very tiny. The density, super high. All of what we need. And so absolutely love it. It's here. It's with us. It's been proven for a long period of time. It has an amazing track record, uh, contrary to maybe a couple Hollywood movies and some of these entrenched environmental groups uh, get paid and survive off of. But I suppose with that comes the progression to an even better source, which is fusion. Obviously, this is not commercially viable yet or commercially deployed, but you know, for many lives, it has always been technically 10 years away, um, kind of the slogan, if you will, for fusion, just 10 years away. What are your thoughts on fusion, and do you see this reaching commercial level deployment anytime soon? Our thoughts on fusion might come as a surprise to you. We think it is a wholly unnecessary distraction. We think um, fission is perfectly fine for exactly what we need. Um, Fusion 
again, environmentalists like to point to the potential of fusion in order to uh, delay the implementation of fission. You could rest assured that the moment fusion does, or if it does, frankly, ever reach commercial viability, uh, they will be like Lucy with the football, and they will suddenly become violently opposed to the implementation of fusion technology, just like they are the implementation of fission. Um, I think investing in fusion is unnecessary. It solves no real problems. Um, proclaiming that we should um, focus on fusion is an admission that the fake lies of the environmentalists are now the base case for future energy uh, analysis. In other words, one of the main drivers for fusion is it doesn't create you know, nuclear waste. Nuclear waste is, is a non-issue. Um, we shouldn't allow that fundamental axiomatic assumption to, to be tolerated or normalized in our, in our energy discourse. We should fight back. That we should say, no, that's BS, that's nonsense. Um, and so um, as a technological curiosity, as a set of science experiments that might teach us something um, that we don't yet know in, in unexpected or surprising ways, sure, keep researching it. But to postpone the implementation of fission, betting on, the, on, on fusion solving, quote unquote, our problems is, is in our view, foolhardy. Yeah, it's a legitimate position on that. And, and it's absolutely silly to think that you can postpone fission in hopes that fusion, once again, only just a couple years away now. <laughs> so good stuff there. Uh, with that, just coming back to fission, obviously this is an area that you've worked on. So have we. Uh, fission, you know, it's pretty straightforward that the existing reactor fleet around the world consumes uh, one thing, uranium. Uh, which is, uh, you know, very plentiful on Earth, but very uh, lacking, you know, I suppose, of, of talent and expertise to, to pull it out of and get it to market. And of course, there's broken supply chain that still exists today, which I would have never imagined in 2023 that it still is broken. But uh, just your thoughts on the fuel for these reactors, uh, the uranium market, uh, you know, you've been around it for a while. Uh, thoughts on it at this stage? You know, one thumbnail, uh, one thimble size uh, of uranium has the energy equivalent of a ton of coal, if you can believe that. Um, it's just an amazing resource. And um, we have so much uranium that many uranium mines around the world can't operate profitably, even at 70 to $75 a pound uranium. And um, all we need is a higher price of uranium and we'll have all the supply um, that we could ever use. Um, it's just that simple. Um, the, the, to think that um, we will somehow inhibit or be inhibited by uh, a lack of uranium as we uh, embark upon a nuclear renaissance, I think is, is, is silly. Um, the price of uranium could 10x from here and the cost of nuclear power uh, wouldn't notice a difference. I mean, it's, it's such a small input into the cost of operating a nuclear power plant. Uh, and it requires so little of it to produce so much electricity uh, that it is a very small line item in, in an otherwise relatively affordable um, source of energy. And so, um, again, there's a lot of distortion and propaganda around nuclear um, driven by environmentalist Malthusians who oppose it for uh, reasons that have nothing to do with the environment. Um, but we would be bullish uranium. We would be bullish in the long term, of course, um, not making any investment recommendations. But we would be bullish nuclear because, again, in the end, uh, once you study it, if you do care about carbon emissions, then there's no other path. It has to go through uh, nuclear. Well, I suppose there is another path, which is billions of people um, starve and die, uh, but nobody's going to be uh, running on that uh, platform anytime soon.
<laughs> I can think of maybe just one or two people there, Mr. Doomberg, that would probably <laughs> want that in their dreams, although they may not be saying it directly yet, but it's certainly implied. <laughs> well, let's save that one for another time. Just overall here, uh, as we wrap up, any other sectors or larger themes that you are watching? You know, obviously we covered some of them here, but any insights on maybe some other areas that you're looking at that you think maybe the audience should pay attention to at this point? Yeah, one of the things that we're we're researching now is um, is this whole framing around ESG and the levelized cost of electricity. You know, we hear this mantra all the time that wind and solar are the cheapest, when in reality, anywhere where they are um, implemented, um, electricity becomes more expensive and the grid becomes less reliable. Um, and and in fact, this is all based on one giant lie. And 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 the real theme of this piece and, and and much of the work we're doing is that you know responsible members of industry need to get better at the propaganda game. Uh, solving our quote unquote um, environmental challenges around the world requires no inventions. Um, it requires that the people who know how to do it get better at speaking about it, uh, especially the nuclear power industry. So there's also going to be several pieces um, with that theme in mind uh, about helping you know the scientists and engineers who do the dirty work and the heavy lifting that make our economy uh, run are often the ones that are derided the most um, by these environmentalists. And we think that's a shame and we think that it's irresponsible and we think that it's, it's simply unfair. Um, and so those are the, the, the propaganda tricks that we try to highlight and then to arm our readers with a, a physics-based alternative narrative. Um, and, and through that framework, story after story just magically appears, of course, uh, because it just there's an endless amount of it that we can debunk. Please do that work. Please do um, assist because the industry definitely needs that. And I appreciate you taking some of those initiatives because that along with things like wisdom transfer, skill transfer in some of these technical industries, which again, they're technical, which means a lot of people don't have the patience or the time to pursue them, but it's an area in which we have significant shortfalls of staff, engineers, training, even university level programs. Um, we're focused on things that are not meaningful. Um, and we've had a significant shortage of good talent, good expertise, good experience, and just the basic, even elementary level education to promote uh, these types of industries and these types of jobs, which are absolutely critical to everything that we have. And so I really appreciate you looking at ways to incentivize and motivate and give new ideas to the industry to help get that message out there in a way that really makes a lot of sense. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I think with that, uh, just any other comments uh, for the audience before we go? And then would, I'll couple that with while you're thinking there, just wanted to ask you, are the eggs coming from the chicken coop? Are those green as well? <laughs> yeah, no, I think we covered it uh, quite well. Uh, not, not much to add. We, had, we covered a, a wide range of, of topics and I really appreciate it coming on. Um, yeah, the, the eggs from the chicken coop are in fact green. I mean, why not? And um, and uh, maybe I'll just give a, a closing commercial for uh, where your listeners could find us, if that's all right. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And let me just say, you know, again, thanks for the time and, and we'll stop here for now. Uh, but before we do go, please talk about your business and what you can do for the audience uh, who might be considering signing up for your services. Yeah, you bet. So you can find all of our work at doomberg.substack.com. We are um, exclusively on the Substack platform for listeners who are unaware of what Substack is. You could think of it as the YouTube for writers and bloggers, except instead of running an advertising model, it's it's based solely on subscriptions and and the support uh, of your readers. Uh, we are 100% subscriber supported. We don't do any advertising or or any branding or co-branding or, or take any uh, sponsorship to that effect. And nothing wrong with those business models, but for us, and given the, the types of topics we like to discuss, 
uh, we would have rather have complete editorial freedom uh, to speak our minds as, as fully as possible. Um, we have uh, almost 200,000 uh, email subscribers and growing. We're the, the number one paid finance subsec in the world, which is amazing and humbling and thrilling to say. Um, still in a bit of disbelief, but uh, that's where you'll find our work. Um, you can sign up for uh, monthly or annual subscriptions, and we have a pro tier for uh, for those who want to support our work at an even higher level, and, and they get some extra goodies uh, for joining that tier. But like I say, I really appreciated the time today. It was a fantastic discussion, uh, and looking forward to maybe coming back in the future if you'll have us back on. Plan on doing that. And just one other thing specifically, what is the best way for folks to reach out, uh, contact you directly with any questions? Yeah, sure. They could reach us via email, doomberg at protonmail.com, or they could sign up for the free setting at, at doomberg.substack.com, which then gets them access to previews to all of our pieces. And we're pretty responsive to emails. We're a very small team. Um, we handle everything ourselves. Uh, we've not outsourced anything. So we do all of the emails, all of the comments, uh, all of the promotion, all the podcast appearances. It's all uh, either me or, or our editor-in-chief, my, my primary partner in this amazing business. You know, uh, all polite emails will be responded to, let's put it that way. Excellent. We like that style. It's too uh, uncommon in this world today. So really appreciate that. And we do recommend on our side that our listeners and readers also uh, do go over and look at that, look hard at the subscription. We think it's uh, a very valuable setup for what you're paying. And once again, really appreciate the conversation and time and we'll uh, speak again soon. Awesome. Thanks a lot.